Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with church family. Hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving and appreciate Dave Corbett um, and his ministry of the word last Sunday from Psalm 92. So this morning we're going to continue our series through the book of Nehemiah and we're going to be looking at chapter 8 this morning. So if you're not there already, you can turn in the Bible in the pew if you are using that Bible or if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use the Bible in the pew. And you can find our passage, Nehemiah 8, on page 403. So while you're turning there, I want you to think with me about holiness. So I want you to think, what are my connotations? What are your connotations with holiness? Holiness of God with the call to live a holy life, what words come to mind? What synonyms or connotations come to mind? Does it kind of stir up connotations of sternness and strictness and joylessness? Or stiffness and legalism? Or austerity and coldness? Or I guess I could multiply adjectives, but you get the idea. I'm reminded of this section from Till We Have Faces. It's a, another one of C.S. Lewis's fiction books, and it's maybe lesser known, but it's probably maybe one of his best works of fiction. And the story is set in this kingdom of Gloam, and Orwal is the daughter of the king, and she's the narrator of the book. And in Gloam, they worship Ungat, this goddess, and there's a priest and she writes this, I had a fear of the priest that was quite different from my fear of my father. I think that what frightened me in those early days was the holiness of the smell that hung about him. It was a temple smell of blood and burnt fat and singed hair and wine and stale incense. It is the unget smell. <laughs> so... Maybe that's a long way away from where we live because we're not sacrificing animals. But you can imagine that those would be some of the possible connotations for people even in Israel. These smells and, you know, mountains trembling and shaking. So here's the question. Okay, connotations with holiness. Do you think that joy goes naturally with Holiness. Would that be one of the first things that comes to mind? Or was that one of the first words that came to mind when I said, what are your connotations with holiness? Joy? Do those things go hand in hand or do they seem to be at odds? I think if we're honest, it probably is more likely that we think they're at odds rather than that they go hand in hand. Well, Nehemiah 8 is all about the law of God, all about the holiness of God, and the holiness that God calls his people to. And it's a chapter that's all about the joy of the Lord. It's a joy and a rejoicing that God calls, even commands, his people to in this chapter. So let's see how, as we dive in here. So first thing, we're going to, three points this morning. There's an outline. There's sheets out in the desk if you want to run out and grab one, or you'll see the, the points, I think. 
um, up on the uh, screen here, but first the centrality of the Word of God we see in Nehemiah 8. So let's read verses 1 to 8 first together. And I think hopefully as you go along here, as we go along here, you'll see why we needed to read Leviticus 23. Many of us maybe groan when we hit Leviticus in our Bible reading plan. Um, but if we're going to understand the big story, every part matters. And what's going on here in Numbers 8 is built on what's going on in Leviticus 23 and some other passages as well that we might not be as familiar with. So, Nehemiah 8, verses 1 to 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, most likely the kids, okay? So kids that were old enough to understand. On the first day of the seventh month, do you remember that? Leviticus 23, 24 talks about the first day of the seventh month. So what's supposed to go on in the seventh month is laid out in Leviticus 23. That's why we read it. And so here on the first day of the seventh month, these people are gathered. And Ezra read from the book of the law of Moses, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. It's maybe like three hours. How would you feel about that? <laughs> In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. So they planned ahead for this so that it would be as conducive as possible to attend to the word of God. They made this wooden platform. And beside him stood Mataniah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah. On his right hand, and Padea, Mishael, Malkijah, all these guys, Malkijah. See, I'm trying to make you feel better about, no. Hashum, Hash, that guy, Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, up on the platform. And as he opened it, all the people stood. This spontaneous reverence almost like receiving the word like royalty. If royalty comes in to town, everybody stands. And here, everyone gives the word a royal reception. And this reverence is evidenced in their posture here. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So they're moving among the people, explaining, understanding. Help explaining the law so that they can understand it. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. 
Okay, so this is not bibliolatry. They're not worshiping the Bible. They are worshiping the God of the Bible, and they are reverently receiving his word here. This is Isaiah 66, 2. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. I will look on him with favor, with blessing. So God is pleased with the way that his people respond here. So, quick little context here. Um, We're jumping into Nehemiah 8, if you haven't been with us um, in this series. Ezra and Nehemiah go together. So the people were in exile in Babylon and then Persia, you know, conquered Babylon. And so they're in exile in Persia. That's the world power at the time. The Lord raised up Cyrus so that he could return his people back to Jerusalem, back to Judah and rebuild the temple, rebuild the city. So first Zerubbabel went back, Ezra chapter one, chapters 1 through 6. And a a first wave of people went back. And then Ezra went back. And they were rebuilding the altar and the temple and rebuilding the people of God. Okay, so in Ezra, chapters 1 through 6 focus on the rebuilt altar and temple. And then Ezra 7 through 10 focuses on the rebuilt people of God. And then in Nehemiah, chapters 1 through 6, which we've looked at in previous weeks, The focus is on rebuilding the wall. But this rebuilding effort is not stopping with a completed wall with hung doors and gates like we looked at a couple weeks ago. That's a means to an end, to provide safety so that people can return and populate the city and the people of God can be built up and strengthened spiritually and become the people God intends them to be. So, The rebuilding of the people is the purpose of all of this work. And it's ultimately done, not with mortar and bricks, but by the word. The word rebuilds the people of God, both in the book of Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah, that's the case. So it's important to note here in these first eight verses that the word is rebuilding the people. And what we see over and over again, did you notice this, this word repeated? Understanding is the goal. So all who could understand, verse 2. All could, those who could understand, verse 3. Verse 7. The Levites helped the people to understand the law. And then in verse 8, um, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly. They gave the sense so that, so that the people understood the reading. So understanding is the purpose, the goal. So Derek Kidner writes this, one of the commentators I've read on this. The law had always envisaged a wise and understanding people, taught from childhood not only the words of God, but what the words and rituals meant. Mindless superstition was the mark of paganism. Not just going through motions, not just, you know, repeating mantras mindlessly. The point was understanding, to know God, to know his will, and to live in light of who he is and what he's done and how he calls his people to live. Remember in Jeremiah 9, 
Let not the wise man boast in his riches or the mighty man boast in his might or the rich man... <laughs> sorry, um, I left one out. Which one did I leave out? Strong man boasts of his strength. Did I say that one? Anyway, don't boast in those things, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I'm the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness, for in these things I delight. So the goal of the rebuilding project in Nehemiah is so much bigger than the walls. It's about understanding the Word of God and knowing and understanding the God of the Word and the will of this God. And that understanding is life-changing. The goal was to know and to live in light of what you know. Covenant faithfulness is what that knowledge looks like, how it gets fleshed out. So God's faithfulness, you need to know God and know his faithfulness, his deliverances in the past, his faithfulness to his people so that you can trust him. All of his promises, as Al prayed, are yes, they're reliable. He's faithful and trustworthy. And then our faithfulness is a response to his faithfulness as we live out the law. So that's true in the old covenant. It was true for the people of Israel. And it's most certainly true for the people of God in the new covenant. So in Jeremiah 31, when the new covenant is predicted, do you remember this? Maybe flip to Jeremiah 31, 31, so that you can see that, again, the purpose of the covenant, the new covenant in this case, is to know God. Jeremiah 31, 31. You can find that on page... 660, if you're using the Pew Bible. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the, the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, in the Old Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, the law of God is written on tablets of stone outside of the people. In the New Covenant, it's written on the heart. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for everyone in this covenant, everyone in the people of God, they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So we see the centrality of the word of God in all reformation and revival and rebuilding of the people of God. It was the case, the old covenant people, it's the case for us as well. Listen, the word of God is absolutely vital and central and essential to the formation of the people of God. God created everything by his omnipotent word. Let there be light, and there was light. And everything was ordered and filled. And at, God, at, at Sinai, think about it. He delivers his people, and then he gives them the law to shape his people, who they are, and how they 
live. So from creation all the way to new creation, ultimately, the Word of God creates, builds, shapes, forms, conforms the people of God as God intends. So this is all over the place in the Bible, just so that you're sure to see it. Think about Psalm 1. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in season. His leaf won't wither. He's durable when the hot winds blow. Do you see how the word of God is generative? It gives life. You'll be like a fruitful tree. When you delight in the law of the Lord, you will live and be fruitful and durable. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It's absolutely vital to our life. The word of God creates and sustains and shapes the people of God. Or James 1.18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. The word gives birth. You know, you must be born again. When the word enters in by the spirit and regenerates us, it's like imperishable seed falling into the soil of our hearts and creating life, new life and growth. So do you see how the word is absolutely essential to the creation, the formation, the shaping, the correction, the growth of the people of God. So, what is your, what is my, what is our relationship to the Word of God? This is why we teach the Bible every week. This is why we have discipleship curriculum classes. This is why we teach the kids. This is not just going through the motions. This is absolutely essential to the life and health and vitality and building and rebuilding of the church, of the people of God. So may there be a revival of our love and our hunger. It's easy to just kind of check out, isn't it? It's easy to go through the motions. It's easy to just, like, whether it's our, our daily relationship to God's word or our weekly rhythms of listening to the word of God, to get really passive or to just be often... We need a revival of hunger for, reverent, hungry, expectant, like desire for the Word of God. We can't have reformation and rebuilding without the Word of God. No wonder Paul instructs Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Like, where's the grace for Bethel to be built this year, next year, the years to come, generations to come? Where's the grace going to come from? Where's the power going to come from? It comes from the Word. So the importance of the ministry of the Word, whether it's David last week or, you know, in 
teaching the first to third graders or the fourth or sixth graders. Or, like, pray for the teachers. Please pray for me. Let's pray for our own hearts that we would be, I mean, I know for me every day I'm praying, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Don't you wake up and your heart's like spring-loaded to be hungry for and desire like all the wrong things? Or you just want to like hurry up, check off the box of reading your psalm for the day and get on to all the work that you have to do? It's just easy for our appetites, our hungers, our desires to get all out of whack. We don't live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We need to be hungry for God's word. The word builds the people of God. It it gives joy and motivation, which we'll see in a minute. It empowers us. So the ministry of the word is so important and central. That's why we do this. That's why I do this. You know, week after week, or others minister the word from this pulpit. That's why we do the discipleship curriculum. It's why we teach our kids. But listen, this is all of us. In Ephesians 4, we've referenced it a few times in the series. Speaking the truth in love, the church is built up as every member does their work. So we all have a role in building up the body of Christ to speak the truth to one another in love. It's not just this place, this time. So, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Right? So if there's all this work of rebuilding that needs to happen, isn't it appropriate that the people of God start with the Word of God? and they're hungry and expectant, and may we be as well. So we need a revival of the centrality of the word. And I'm not saying that, you know, we've completely drifted from this and none of you care about the word of God. No, no, we always need to come back to the word, don't we? We always need revived in, you know, remembering and going, oh my goodness, how is it that I can be so bored with God's word? How is it that it's so hard to, to get into his word on a daily basis or like have trouble? I don't feel like going to church today. Like, Lord, change my desires, own my affections and my hungers and my appetites. And don't let me just nibble at the white bread of the world and lose my taste for what really satisfies. So, Revival of the centrality of the word happened here in Nehemiah 8. It led the people to an awareness of their sin. They, had, they mourned over their sin because they realized they had neglected the word of God. They realized that they had disobeyed the law of God. And so they wept. So point number two, a time to weep and a time to laugh. Let's look at verses 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, means eat the best, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. 
And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. <laughs> what is going on here? It seems like mourning and weeping would be the proper response. Do you remember back in Nehemiah 1 when Nehemiah is responding to the state of things in Israel in Jerusalem particularly. And he's mourning his own sin and mourning the sin of the people. In 1.7 it says, We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So no wonder these people are mourning and weeping as they hear the word of God. It, it's just like a mirror exposing who they are and how they've neglected God's law and how they've disobeyed. But wait, the people aren't allowed to mourn and weep. Isn't that weird? They are commanded instead to celebrate and rejoice. Why? Because this day is holy. Holiness and joy. Holiness and celebration. This day is holy to Yahweh, your God. It's set apart as holy to Him. So don't mourn or weep. And then in verse 10. Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. So the reason they're supposed to not weep but rejoice is because this day is holy to the Lord. So again, that passage that Al read back in Leviticus 23. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. We use that language very often. It just means a formal assembly of people. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. So here's the thing. Do you remember when a little later it says you shall afflict yourselves? What is that all about? Are you supposed to like put a piece of soap and a sock and like whack yourself in the back and do penance or but no 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 it's fasting so the norm for for honoring a day that's holy to the lord is celebration the day of atonement you need to afflict yourselves it's fasting so the point is they are reminded they are told that this day is a day it's a joyful feast it's a celebration so these feasts were appointed as days of gladness. You can look at Numbers 10.10 and Deuteronomy 12, 7-12, and you can see that these feasts were appointed as days of gladness and celebration. Joy is the tone. Joy is the purpose of the feast. It's the joy of the Lord, enjoyed by the people of God. Joy is actually one of God's attributes. Do you know that? Does that sound weird? God's happy. Where does all the joy in this universe come from? God is the source of that. So it's his character. It's in his character. It's who he is. And he's actually built it into the law, into festivals and feasts. 
massively important month. The seventh month was a massively important month in the life of the people of God. The first day kicks off with this holy assembly characterized by joy. Then the Day of Atonement. Al read this. And it's more solemn, but only as preparation for the joy to come, the Feast of Booths. Okay? Of course, the sin has to be taken care of. If you're going to enjoy relationship with God, we need our sins atoned for. But once they're atoned, woohoo! Like, God is our God. And He's for us, not against us. So, Derek Kidner again, he says, True, the Day of Atonement, with its call to afflict oneself, was holy, but it existed to clear the air for happier occasions. To be altogether joyful was the prospect held before the guests of God. And the words that went most naturally with holiness were not only justice and righteousness, but glory, beauty, strength, and joy. And then he says, holiness and gloom go ill together. Holiness and gloom, ah, nope, those don't go together. And then, again, Leviticus 23, the Feast of Booze, begins on day 15 of the seventh month. And that celebrates and takes joy in the deliverance and faithfulness of God by remembering and rehearsing their exodus out of Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. Okay? So his deliverance, his sustaining grace and protection all the way into the promised land. So it's the joy and the delight of God to deliver his people, to be merciful and gracious, to provide for them, to protect them. You know, pillar of fire, pillar of cloud. You know, Red Sea parted. All of this is God's love for his people, his mercy, his pleasure in his people poured out in acts of deliverance and protection and provision. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So the leaders would not allow the people to mourn and weep. So think about it. If the goal of this day, the first day of the seventh month, is celebration, why is Jerusalem in such a mess in the first place? Because of disobedience to the word. So if they hit the first day of the seventh month and they disobeyed by mourning, they're just continuing the problem. No, 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 no. This is a day of rejoicing. So if we're going to turn over a new leaf, if we're going to become a new people and be reformed and rebuilt, we need to do it by obeying God, trusting him and obeying him, right? So this is a day of joy. Enough with your weeping. Let's celebrate. Do you see? Disobedience had gotten them into the bad place, so if they're going to walk forward in faith, they should comply with the intent of this feast. So let's just stop and think about this for a minute. The Word of God is commanding people to emote. How, think about that. Rejoice in the Lord always. I think we kind of chafe at that a little bit don't we? You can't just turn on your emotions like that. Okay. True. So is all real rejoicing only the kind that kind of spontaneously comes out of nowhere that you don't cultivate at all? Or how about this? Is Thanksgiving, like this past week, 
It, has it ever been helpful for you to head into Thanksgiving week and go, oh, I should really kind of think about what I'm thankful for. And the discipline, kind of the reminder of this week, you know, man, I've been so kind of grumbly and just kind of like churning it out and making the widgets and whatever. And it's, it was so good to just stop and be forced to think through, what am I thankful for? And what happened? Gratitude rose up. What do we think? That real gratitude only comes like spontaneously? It's kind of like the only kind of real prayer happens spontaneously. No, the more disciplined you are in prayer, the more spontaneous prayer will actually be kind of catalyzed. The more like you are reminded, I need to be, there's so much to be thankful for. I need to take some time to think about this. I have so much to be joyful about. The more you are reminded to go there, the more you will realize how much you have to be joyful about and more spontaneous joy will actually be cultivated. Are you tracking with me? So isn't it God's wisdom and goodness to build these feasts and fasts into the calendar and the rhythm? Because it's so easy to just kind of like keep plowing ahead. And there's this regular reminder for us, we could say the Lord's Supper is similar. But maybe we need to build in more checkpoints and reminders to cultivate gratitude and joy that we might find the joy of the Lord to be our strength. So I was thinking about this a little bit, like on this side of the cross and the resurrection, maybe this is a parallel of sorts. You know, in 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul says, you know, He's talking about the end times, and he says, you know, those of us who weep, you know, because people die, right? And we weep because of that. We don't mourn as those who have no hope. <laughs> because Jesus rose from the dead. Do you know what time it is? you know what the season is? Like where we are in, in kind of the arc of the storyline? So hopelessness is not the right thing for where we live right now. That doesn't mean we're not going to mourn. We're not going to weep. We're going to have sorrow, absolutely. But we're not going to mourn as those who have no hope because we live on this side of the resurrection and we have a hope that can't be killed even by death. It's a living hope. Rejoice in the Lord always. That's what time it is <laughs> because Jesus is alive, interceding for us at the Father's right hand. It is finished. We're not going to hell anymore. Nothing and no one can take the past deliverance of God from us. Nothing and no one can take the future deliverance of God from us. We will feast in the house of Zion. And in the midst of the wilderness that we walk in as exiles and pilgrims, guess what? He prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. So we can rejoice in the Lord always. That's what time it is. So again, this doesn't mean, you know, like rose-colored glasses, Pollyanna, like 
you know, pain doesn't hurt. No, you know, no, 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 no. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Because our God is the fountain, the indomitable, like, no way you can exhaust this fountain, fountain of joy. And when we know him, and we have peace with him through Jesus, the joy of the Lord will be our strength. So, so do you need Psalm 51? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Yes. So, have you, have you ever, like, seen this happen in your life? How something, some grace, some gift, some promise, some hope strengthened you? Have you ever been, like, down and weak and bummed out and depressed and whatever, and then you get, like, a text or a phone call or something, and let's say it's a raise or a promotion or she likes me. He likes me. Or concert tickets or tickets to the game. Or you got your grade back on that paper and you got an A. Woo! And all of a sudden, it's easier to do the chore or to help set the table. Do you see how joy strengthens us? So do you see how dangerous it is to not live with the joy of the Lord strengthening us? Because we're going to be really weak and we're going to just like, <sighs> every time we've got to do something. Every time God calls us to do something. But if we're remembering and rehearsing all that God has done and is doing and promises to do and to be, the joy of the Lord will be our strength. So listen, if we are sour, and you know what? I'm just guilty. Like, come on. Lord, give us more joy. I am so guilty. Rejoice in the Lord always. My family knows that's not true. Always. Give thanks in all circumstances. Anybody want to live there? I want to live there. I don't often live there. But listen, we live on this side of the cross. And he's with us even at the end of the age. Like, it's the time to give thanks in all circumstances and rejoice in the Lord always. So when the word is central and vital, it rebuilds and renews and revives and strengthens us. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. Habakkuk 3 is a beautiful example of this. He's in the midst of horrific circumstances. And like, Babylonians are coming in. They're going to wipe out the people of God, to, you know, just burn Jerusalem to the ground, and listen to how he responds because he just rehearsed God's faithfulness in the past. How are you going to walk through this suffering in faith? He says, I hear, and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And then he says this, though the fig tree does not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So 
He was going to have absolutely nothing. That's the prospect he's facing. But no one, Babylonians, nobody can take away God's past faithfulness from him. And nobody can get, take away God's present faithfulness or future faithfulness from him. So he can rejoice in the Lord and find the Lord strengthening him to endure the trial, even in the face of lack and suffering. So again, Lord's Supper. But maybe we can build in other ways, you know? I mean, Advent is a good season. There's nothing like you have to celebrate Advent, but it's a good thing to rehearse what God has done in the incarnation because not only do we rehearse the anticipation and arrival of God's deliverer, but we also realize we are waiting for him to come again. And in the wilderness, it gets hot and dry, and we can't wait to feast in the house of Zion. So we are waiting again for his return. Okay, final point. What do these things mean? Look at verses 13 to 18. <clears throat> On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches, all these different sorts to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, um, etc. Verse 17, And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, it's a variant for the name Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. Most likely, either the making of booths fell out of practice, or they didn't kind of celebrate it as expansively as they were here, like everybody, um, because even back in Ezra chapter 3, they actually celebrated this. So maybe the issue is that the actual making of booze had fallen out of practice. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So what was the Feast of Booths all about? I mentioned it earlier. God's protection of the people. So they lived in these temporary shelters, right? They were brought out of Egypt. They're heading to the Promised Land, and they lived in these temporary shelters. So God was their strength, their refuge, their stronghold all the way through the wilderness. So Derek Kidner again here, he says, the strange blend of settled and unsettled life presented by the incongruous site of shanties perched on the roofs of houses and filling the city squares was a forcible reminder experienced for a whole week of pilgrim conditions and the miraculous journey to the promised land. And then he says this, there was now a second exodus to reinforce the message. And the reference in verse 17 to ancient history and to the more recent turn from captivity suggests that the point was taken. So, out of Egypt, through the wilderness to the promised land. Out of Persia, through a thousand-mile journey to Jerusalem, back to the promised land to rebuild. And listen, the greatest exodus was accomplished by Jesus on the cross. Out of the house of slavery to sin, we were delivered, set free. We are now pilgrims and exiles, Hebrews 11 until 
we make it all the way home. So we are pilgrims and exiles. We are free, but we're not home. And the way home can be long and hard. There is a lot of work yet to be done. But the joy of the Lord, of Yahweh, is our strength. So James Hamilton says this, Israel's festivals commemorated what God had done for them in the past. As they celebrated Passover, booths, and weeks, year after year, they reenacted what God had done for them at the exodus from Egypt, in the sojourn through the wilderness, and upon their entry into the land to enjoy its fruits. Reenacting the past in this way would shape their view of the world. And this no doubt contributed to how the Old Testament authors constantly compare the way God will save his people in the future to the way he saved them in the past. By celebrating the festivals every year, the narratives of what God had done for his people in the past became paradigmatic constructs, schematic models of the type of thing God does for his people. This is who he is. This is what he's like. He's done it for others. He's going to do it for us. We can trust him. His joy will be our strength. So when the word is central, it will lead us to the God of the word who is an indomitable, overflowing fountain of joy and deliverance and mercy and grace and love, all ours in Christ. And his joy becomes our strength and we can rejoice in the Lord always as we make our pilgrimage through the wilderness of this world all the way home rehearsing the way God has worked in the past will strengthen our faith in the present because we can have confidence as we head into the future that he will be with us, he will be for us, and he's never going to leave or forsake us. So this is who God is. This is what God has done. This is the kind of God we trust and worship and serve. This is the kind of thing we can expect. So will we? church family? Will we seek him? Will we trust him? Will we praise this God that his joy would be our strength? Let's pray, and then we're going to respond with a song, Yes, I Will. May that be our heart's response. So, Lord, you are so good and faithful. You are an overflowing fountain of joy and life and strength and hope and mercy and compassion and love and faithfulness. Would you please help us to live on your word and on your works and your promises and be filled with your joy. Would you restore to us the joy of your salvation? so that we can live faithfully as your people and shine with your light in this dark world as we make our way home. In Jesus' name, amen.